Welcome to The Victory Kitchen, the podcast all about American food rationing during World War II. I'm your host, Sarah Creviston Lee, author, historian, and vintage foodie. I'll be exploring the logistics of food rationing, featuring wartime cookbooks and recipes, and highlighting real home front experiences. We're going to be learning exactly what our grandmothers had to do to get their food to fight for victory. Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Victory Kitchen. Today is episode number seven, Ice Cream Goes to War. But first, happy VE Day in honor of the 75th anniversary of this commemoration. I wanted to take a quick moment to tell you a little bit about somebody I just recently started following on Instagram. His username is Uncle Joey 100 And if you haven't heard of this guy, he's he's pretty terrific. He is 98 years young. This is from his bio. Uh, He's a World War II Purple Heart Army vet, living life, Yanks opening day honoree 2018. And he says, follow me to 100. He's the oldest man in the USA with an Instagram account. His account is really fun, and it's great seeing him share pictures of himself from the war and sharing some fun anecdotes and his older wisdom. Like one of his posts, he says, as someone who fought hard in World War II and survived the depression with little or no food, I think I have to post this without meaning any disrespect. And his post says, to those who are complaining about the quarantine period and curfews, just remember that your grandparents were called to war. You are being called to sit on the couch and watch Netflix. You can do this. (laughs) So true words, true words, Uncle Joey. So Sadly, right now, he is fighting coronavirus, and he could definitely use our prayers. So give this guy a follow on Instagram, uh, say a prayer for him, and um, we're really rooting for him, hoping he fights through this. All right, well, today we are talking about ice cream and ice cream rationing. What better way to celebrate the 75th anniversary of VE Day than with ice cream, right? Well, in the October 1943 issue of the Westinghouse Health for Victory cookbook, that's always a mouthful to say, they tell this funny story and it goes with the picture on the cover. It shows a sailor on the cover happily eating his dish of ice cream. And the story inside is They're hearkening back to earlier in the war, the previous year, um, May 1942, and the USS Lexington. And this is what they say. Remember the story of the aircraft carrier Lexington? Doomed to sink as a result of the terrific battering she took in the Coral Sea battle, her men delayed abandoning the ship until they had made a gallant attempt to eat up the ice cream supply. Later reports said that they went over the side with their helmets packed full of the precious stuff. It was an incident with such a small boy flavor that many of us chuckled. And it was such a merry, devil-may-care disregard of very real danger that many of us became misty-eyed. Okay, so I really love this story. And I really wondered um, how true it was. So I went and looked it up in the newspaper headlines. And I did find this story about the ice cream in the USS Lexington. Although this report in the cookbook is a little skewed, I think. But even in the newspaper articles, it's hard to really pin down exactly what happened because 
I guess they received reports from so many different guys. Um, I don't know. It's so I found some reports saying that they went to get ice cream on this sinking ship out of boredom while they waited evacuation. It seemed to be like a slow sinking. So they had to wait for their orders before they could evacuate. Um, other reports uh, portrayed this ice cream uh, feast as a last hurrah and to not let the ice cream to go to waste because, you know, it's just sitting there and it's better to eat it than let it sink to the bottom of the ocean. So anyway, it's such a great story and um, I think really demonstrates the love for ice cream that Americans had. So let's back up to before the war, take a look at ice cream. You know, ice cream was a very common popular dessert. It was said that it was so common, it took a lot of convincing and fancying up to convince hostesses to serve it to their guests. Before the war, you could get your ice cream fix at the local drugstore or soda shop or ice cream shop, or you could buy pints and quarts of it at the ice cream shops too. The ice cream came um, in two different ways. Besides getting scoops of it or in some kind of a drink concoction, the if you wanted to get it in the quarts or pints, it came factory packed or hand packed. Some people claimed that hand packed ice cream was better and more rich and creamy, but the Sidwell Dairy Company in Iowa explained that that was probably because the hand packing pressed out the air and made the ice cream more dense in the carton. Now, there was a difference in price between factory-packed ice cream versus hand-packed ice cream. The prevailing cost of factory-packed ice cream in a quart was 35 cents. And for hand-packed quart, it was 55 cents. Now, before you get really excited about these prices, I don't know if you remember, but in a previous episode, I talked about calculating the true cost in today's dollars. So I went and did the calculation, and I will not bore you with math equations, uh, but I will leave a link on, on my blog post corresponding with this episode where you can go and see how to do this calculation for yourself. So I did the calculation with um, inflation factored in, and $0.35 cents comes to about $4.02. And $0.55 cents comes out to about $6.31. So $4 for a carton of ice cream, eh, that's, that's about right. If you get like maybe like Briars or somewhere, you know, along that level of ice cream. Um, yeah, I know you can get it for cheaper, like if you get the store brand. But the hand-packed ice cream, $6.31, that's, that's kind of pricey. Yeah, that kind of gives you a good idea of in our dollar today what that would actually cost. All right, so when it comes to ice cream flavors, I'm really fascinated with ice cream flavors from this time period, but it's really hard to pin down a list. There just really isn't one out there. You just have to kind of hunt around. You can find um, images of original like soda shop menus and things like that, but it really did vary region by region. There's just, you know, in some places, some flavors were more popular than others. And I'm sure some ice cream shops made up their own flavors to sell, just like there's a bunch of dairy ice cream shops here in Maryland, and they 
each have their own kind of signature flavors. But I was able to find, at least in Iowa, because the Sidwell Dairy Company ran this series that was almost a year long about the dairy situation during the war. And they did talk quite a bit about ice cream because that's one of their products. So they said that their most popular flavors were number one was vanilla. Number two was chocolate. Number three was strawberry. <laughs> Are you surprised? Vanilla is is not, if you think about it, it's not really a big surprise because it was really versatile in its uses in soda shops for things like sundaes, sodas, malted milks, etc. Plus, if you were having to decide on one flavor as a family, vanilla was a good neutral flavor that everyone could probably agree on. But this wasn't good enough for me. I really wanted to know some weird flavors out there. So I went through a whole bunch of my wartime cookbooks. And these are the flavors that I found. That, and these are all ones you could make yourself. So this isn't saying that's all the flavors that were out there. It just happens to be the ones in my cookbooks. All right, so here we go. Here's cherry walnut, fudge ripple, English almond toffee, eggnog, peppermint, maple nut, walnut, frozen pudding. So frozen pudding was a mixture of vanilla ice cream with citron, raisins, walnuts, and maraschino cherries. I was not expecting that. I thought it would be something like chocolate pudding or something. But no, I think they mean more like a, a British pudding. Um, all right. Also, maple fruit. This had candied cherries and crushed pineapple in it. There was marshmallow, orange, peach, pistachio, prune. My son actually got excited about this one. My kids actually like prunes. <laughs> so uh, we all think prune ice cream sounds exciting. Um, raspberry, rose, Neapolitan. Okay, I know there's mixed feelings about Neapolitan out there. Um, at least in my family, strawberry is the loathed flavor in the Neapolitan box. But according to this wartime cookbook, Neapolitan was completely different. It did have strawberry, but the other two flavors were pistachio and orange. But they say, with a little caveat, that any flavor combos could be used. So there you go. Just make up your own. All right, next we've got avocado, sour cream. Hmm. Uh, this is a type of vanilla, but sour cream is used in the recipe. Caramel, cherry, nut, just nut, um, apricot, coffee, pineapple, molasses, praline. Hmm, that one sounds interesting. I think I might try that one. Banana, bisque. This has macaroon crumbs in it. Grape nuts ice cream. Have any of you tried that? I know it's available in some places and the people I've asked about it have tried it and they say it's not that great, but I don't know. I'm still intrigued. There's also pecan brittle, orange pecan, red plum, butter pecan, loganberry, ginger, lemon, pineapple mint, bing cherry. Whew, this is quite the list, isn't it? Rum, burnt almond, pumpkin. This is cinnamon, ginger, orange rind, and brown sugar with the pumpkin in there. That sounds amazing. And last is Tutti Frutti. This was not what I expected for Tutti Frutti. Maraschino cherries, sherry wine, chopped nuts, and crushed pineapple. Woohoo! Now, if you're not hungry for ice cream by the end of this list, I don't know. <laughs> I'm not even that big of an ice cream fan. Um, don't hunt me down. I'm sorry. I just, I just, 
it's just not my favorite thing. Um, I get more excited for like baked goods, like cake or cookies. <laughs> so that's the list. I did not search through all my cookbooks either. This is just like the main ones I have and um, really interesting flavors in there. A lot I'm sure you might recognize. I also have to put in a few flavors of sherbet because sherbet will come into play in a little bit. The number one flavor for sherbet was pineapple. Number two was orange. This is talking in Iowa as before. And Sidwell Dairy Company also said that the new upcoming favorite flavor that took over pineapple was apricot whip. Here are some more sherbet flavors. Cranberry, orange, economy, which includes lemon, banana, orange flavor. There's peach, lemon, lime milk, lemon milk, and rhubarb. Whew, those sound good too. So there we go. There are some examples of 1940s ice cream flavors. Now we come to the part where ice cream goes to war. The interesting thing about ice cream is that it shares a lot of the same problems with the dairy situation. If um, you haven't listened to the previous episode, episode six, about dairy rationing, I really recommend you go listen to that too, because ice cream goes hand in hand with the dairy rationing situation. But the, the fun thing about ice cream in wartime is the way that ice cream manufacturers and ice cream shops kind of gave ice cream kind of a, a lofty nutrition value. <laughs> and so they toted ice cream as pure food, essential dairy food, vital energy food, real food, high energy vitamins and minerals in their most agreeable form. Ice cream is the same healthful food which is playing such an important part in sustaining our American forces. And last but not least, America's favorite dairy food. <laughs> I'm sure we can't argue with that last one. But it's just so interesting that they were kind of lumping ice cream in with the importance of dairy in the diet. Because in the wartime food wheel of nutrition, dairy had its own little wedge. And ice cream is definitely not in the pictures that I've seen. But the ice cream producers would argue that it belongs there. <laughs> so yeah, if Junior doesn't want to drink his milk, just give him ice cream, right? Unfortunately, ice cream was an early casualty of the war. There was a shortage of ice cream. In November 30th, 1942, limited ice cream production was put into place by food order number eight by the War Food Administration. Starting then, no cream more than 19% was permitted to be sold, which eliminated whipping cream entirely and cut the butterfat content of coffee cream. As a result, recipes for whipping evaporated milk and light cream crop up in um, wartime cookbooks. Then in December of 1942, ice cream production was limited. So only 65% of the dairy products used in ice cream the previous year was now available for cream. So let's say that in December of 1941, your ice cream shop used 100 gallons of cream. This is a totally made up 
um, amount <laughs> and way too low, I'm sure. Uh, but this just for the sake of ease of calculations here. So 100 gallons of cream. Well, in December of 1942, that means you could only use 65 gallons of cream to make your ice cream for that month. And then in January, it corresponded with the previous January's sales of your ice cream and how much cream you used in that month. Each month was different because... The, you know, sales were different throughout the year for each month. Obviously, in hotter months, more ice cream is sold than in colder months. So the thermometer really regulated how much ice cream was being sold. But because of these two uh, limitation orders, it's estimated to have saved the equivalent of 200 million pounds of butter. So this is just a good example of the relationship of all the dairy products. There's only so much dairy out there, and they just really had to decide how to use what was available based on the needs and demand of uh, the military and of the public. So a little more detail about food order number eight by the War Food Administration. It stated that an ice cream manufacturer may use just 65% of the milk and cream, which was used in the same month of the year previous. The purpose of the order, of course, is the conservation of milk and cream since the dairy farms of the nation no longer are able to produce all of the dairy products in demand. So ice cream, like milk, was not rationed with ration stamps. Rationing was done on a local basis, and it was up to the ice cream sellers to distribute it in the way that they felt best. A huge amount of the dairy around <laughs> that was available uh, was required by the military and to supply our allies under the Lend-Lease arrangements. So that's where a lot of the dairy went. So some problems that they encountered was that as a result of milk fat rationing, less flavors were produced than before. You could no longer buy large packed quantities of ice cream for picnics or holidays, and ice cream was sometimes hard to purchase in person. They would just run out. In January of 1944, Ice cream production was very restricted. The previous year sales were low because of lack of demand, but in 1944, January was much warmer and demand went up, at least in Iowa. <laughs> um, the sales of ice cream, like I said before, they're always tied to the thermometer. So that's a really tricky situation for them to be in, but there wasn't a lot they could do about it. So people had to go without ice cream. Uh, another situation that was troublesome was that if they sold out on a Sunday, they couldn't necessarily go to their cold storage and bring more ice cream. The Office of Transportation Regulations governed truck operations and stipulated that they couldn't make wholesale deliveries on Sunday. So they had to stock up for Saturday and Sunday sales on Saturday. If they sold out early, the ice cream shop had to close their doors early. Uh, before we feel too sorry for them, um, one article pointed out that ice cream production in Britain had completely ceased altogether because it wasn't considered an essential food. So American soldiers couldn't get ice cream in Britain and they wrote home about how much they missed it. So Americans were very lucky to still be able to get ice cream, even if it was on a um, restricted basis. Now, there were some solutions that they came up with. I ta I'm talking about Iowa a lot because the Sidwell Dairy Company, they wrote a lot 
about the dairy situation with that series of articles that they printed. Um, and I haven't found yet um, any other company that was quite so uh, liberal in their <laughs> explanations. So it definitely varied according to the area of the country, but Iowa's kind of right there in the middle. So it's just um, really cool to have this resource that just is so full of information. They mentioned that in Iowa, there was a wartime ice cream bill, which reduced the permissible butterfat content of ice cream from 12% to 8%. And by doing so, they hope to save approximately 1.2 million pounds of butterfat and thus avoid ice cream rationing in Iowa. The article mentions that many southern states were adopting similar measures for 8% butterfat. The Sidwell Dairy Company explained in November of 43 that this lowering of the milk fat standards has enabled us to change the original Sidwell quality formula to a temporary war formula and thereby more nearly able to supply the demands for our ice cream. This was a very important measure because the butterfat content of ice cream was regulated by law um, and you couldn't put less in there without it being illegal. So um, by passing this wartime um, measure, dairy companies and ice cream companies were able to make their cream stretch farther. Another solution was half and half. This is where sherbet comes into play. So ice cream shops encouraged people to get half ice cream and half sherbet when they ordered their, you know, packed um, quart of ice cream or even just to eat at the counter. Sherbet uses less dairy as it has a sugar syrup base instead of a custard base. One special notice in the newspaper by the Wilson's Candy Kitchen in Paducah, Kentucky, stated that they still sold ice cream in packages of pints or quarts for carryout, but because of ice cream rationing, they asked nicely that customers order half and half, half ice cream, half fresh sherbet. Customers' cooperation will help them to continue selling packaged ice cream. So they were really appealing to the customers to help them do their patriotic duty and to make the ice cream supply go further by ordering this product that used less dairy products. And usually sherbet is made as a fruit flavor. So it was a really refreshing treat to have. And you could use local fruits that were in season. There was a, another drugstore advertisement I found that talked about that it had canceled ice cream deliveries. They still served it in the drugstore. They explained that soldiers, war workers, and other war personnel must have cream. We are proud to bear this rationing for them. So really showing that they are doing their bit for the war. Some other solutions that came from the War Food Administration was in May and June of 1944 only, the restrictions were temporarily relaxed due to those months being what was termed as flush months. Milk production was at a seasonal all-time high. So in order to use the excess milk, the War Food Administration allowed dairies to use 75% of the milk products used the previous year. I can imagine that a lot of customers and um, dairy companies were relieved to have that, but it was short-lived because it was temporary. But in addition to this measure, to further siphon off the surplus in May and June, 
the War Food Administration allowed ice cream plants in ordinarily dairy deficient areas to freeze and store ice cream in excess of their May and June quotas. And then they would deduct it from future monthly quotas when it was sold. So this permitted more extensive freezing of ice cream in the peak months of milk production when the raw products were in abundance. I'm sure this was a huge boon for these areas where um, the demand for milk was much higher than the availability of milk. All right, so the final solution was just make your own dang ice cream. (laughs) You know, ice cream availability varied by location, city versus country based on the local milk situation. So a lot of ice cream recipes that I found from wartime, they use light cream. Some of them use evaporated milk. Some use just regular milk or top milk. There were many ways to make a good ice cream. No, it wasn't as creamy and amazing, delicious as your regular ice cream. But hey, it's better than no ice cream, right? And then if you lived on a farm, well, you probably had no problem getting cream for your ice cream um, if you had dairy cows. So making your own ice cream could be done in one of two ways. One is if you had like a hand crank, you know, like what we think of as old fashioned with rock salt kind of ice cream churn. Another way was to do it in the little freezer section of your refrigerator. The only thing with this method was that those little freezer sections in the fridge were not very big. Um, You couldn't store a lot of like frozen foods in there. Maybe you could keep an ice cube tray or two in there and you could maybe fit a small container for making ice cream in there. So a lot of the recipes I've come across do not say anything about using an ice cream churn, but they have you put it in a container and then you stick it in the freezer. And that leads us right into our featured ration cookbook. Today's featured ration cookbook is called Cooking on a Ration, or Food is Still Fun, by Marjorie Mills. This is my absolute favorite ration cookbook. Have I said that before? (laughs) It's okay to have a few favorites, right? Well, this really is a fantastic book. Marjorie Mills is an amazing writer, and she writes this cookbook with such relish about food and that food even in wartime can still be fun that really is her mantra throughout the whole book let me just read this little uh section from the preface she says we have taken a sudden nosedive from happy-go-lucky splashing about with plenty of whipping cream pounds of butter sirloin steaks and rib roasts The food picture changes so rapidly, we are almost breathless, determined to do what is asked of us, conserve our precious food supply, make it stretch to help feed the hungry, but wistfully, we want pater familias and the family satisfied and proud of what our ingenuity concocts. As Harpo Mark says, it isn't that hard times are coming, but soft times are going. Does that mean food has to be less fun? 
On the contrary, we may be turning the page to a new and exciting chapter in American cuisine for the very reason that we'll work over the foods we do serve with devoted care and concentration. And then at the very end of the preface, she says, All in all, this book is planned for women who have been whirled into a dizzy series of readjustments. They are showing, nevertheless, dauntless spirit, courage, and the resolve to turn out delectable food with whatever materials may be available. They are resolved that good food, good cheer, and good neighborliness shall not vanish. I don't think she realized how how true her words were, that they were turning a page to a new and exciting chapter in American cuisine. 75 years later, we are poring over these books, especially during this pandemic time, turning back to the recipes of our grandmothers because they had to figure out how to make do and do without um, and still put good food on the table. Now, the contents of this cookbook are pretty standard. She's got sections for soups, fish, meats, vegetables, Uh, sauces, entrees, eggs, cheese salads, salad dressings, breads, waffles and griddle cakes, sandwiches, desserts, dessert sauces, fruit combinations, cakes and cookies, beverages, home canning, and then a little section on working with ration points. The fabulous thing about this book, though, are her introductions to every single chapter. They are just delightful, just make your mouth water, and laugh at the same time. Her sense of humor is fantastic. I think my favorite section is the chapter on meats. She says, just as we meet new friends and find out we like them after the first formalities are over, we're hoping you'll like some of the new friends and meats introduced in this chapter. Do you see what's coming? Can you guess? (laughs) Don't stand on ceremony. You really can cook delectable stews and casseroles from all points of the compass on an animal. That's right. Variety meats. Heads, tails, shins, knuckles, and other oddments you hadn't even a Boeing acquaintance with a few months ago are making the culinary blue book because of their low ration point value. Don't mind if the first frozen oxtail you see looks like a medieval sword from the art museum. You may be interested to learn that they serve those same oxtails braised in savory brown sauce with considerable pride at the famous St. Regis in New York. Oh my gosh, I just love this. (laughs) I just love how she writes about organ meats. They're so exciting. Anyway, if you ever get a chance to read this book, I highly recommend it. I know that there is a digital copy online available for checkout, like you would check out at a library. I will leave a link to that on my blog so that you can read this book. I think this is one of the wartime cookbooks that's a must read. You just really have to. (laughs) All right. So now we get to the desserts because she has got two ice cream recipes that I tried. The first one was wartime ice cream, and that's what it's called. It uses a cup of milk, a third cup of sugar, cornstarch, light corn syrup, salt, an egg, a pint, half a pint of light cream, three quarters cup marchino cherries, quarter teaspoon almond extract, and half teaspoon vanilla. And then uh, this recipe, you make a custard. So you scald the milk in a double boiler. You mix in the sugar, cornstarch, the corn syrup, and the salt. And then you add the egg, cook it till it's thick, and then you cool it. And then you add the cream, the cherries, flavorings, and then you freeze it. And she says to stir occasionally to keep the cherries from settling. And it serves six. 
This is important because <laughs> these wartime proportions are very different than what we would think of as a serving of ice cream. Um, this made very little ice cream, maybe because I'm so used to seeing like the quart carton of ice cream from the store. It didn't make very much, which was sad because it was really so delicious. I don't think I've ever had this combination with maraschino cherries, almond extract, and vanilla, but um, it was lovely. We made this in our ice cream maker, so it's just kind of the kind that you put the canister in the freezer and then the little motor on top like spins the blades and turns the ice cream till it gets more like a soft serve ice cream. But I just felt like maybe I wasn't patient enough. My son says I didn't wait long enough for it to get hard, harder. But I um, I gave up. And I after churning it until it was like a very soft, soft serve, I ended up putting it in a container and putting it in the freezer. And after it got much more solid, we gave it a try. And it was amazing and delicious. And that's coming from someone who, you know, ice cream's okay. But it's not my fave. So... And I had to uh, be very careful to save a tiny portion for my friend, Laura, who is the ice cream queen. Um, I've yet to hear the verdict on whether she liked it or not, because she has a very discerning palate. But I wanted to make sure she got some of this uh, wartime ice cream. So very delicious. I highly recommend it as a, a lighter fat option <laughs> for homemade ice cream. So the next recipe I made was fruit sherbet. Now, I'll be honest, I am not a fan of sherbet at all, mainly because I feel like the only kind I've ever really had is like that rainbow sherbet that comes in the gallon bucket and blah, I don't know. It's just not my cup of tea, I guess. Sherbet is like, is like second class to ice cream, I think, in the ice cream world. Um, I'm sure there's people out there who like it, but... um. It's just never the thing I go to when I want something cold and sweet. But I have to tell you, this recipe changed my mind. This is the first time I've made it from scratch. And this fruit sherbet recipe, that's what it's called, fruit sherbet, uses half cup corn syrup, half cup sugar, one cup water, half a cup of lemon juice, and one cup of light cream. So what you do is you use the corn syrup and the sugar and the water to make a sugar syrup that you heat up on the stove, then you cool it, you add ice cold lemon juice, but you reserve one tablespoon of the lemon juice. You add that tablespoon gradually to the very cold light cream and you whip it constantly. This kind of thickens it and then you combine that cream with the sugar and lemon juice mixture and freeze, stirring twice while freezing. Now to get the flavor that you want, you just add fresh fruit to the sugar syrup while it's um, heating on the stove. So I just used what I had on hand. I had, luckily, some fresh pineapple that was an amazing pineapple, and I was so glad there was some left over. So I chopped that up in little pieces and put that in the syrup. I also, so I, I doubled this recipe. I made two different versions because I had two different fruits I needed to use up. The second batch I made orange flavored because I had these oranges on the counter nobody was eating and I didn't want them to go bad. So I juiced the oranges and just added the juice to the sugar syrup on the stove, including all the pulp and stuff. Because before you mix everything together, you have to strain the syrup 
to keep out all the fruit solids. Uh, the sherbet is not meant to be chunky with fruit at all. You, It's just a flavored ice cream. It suggests that you can use peaches, raspberries, or strawberries. It says that frosted peaches, raspberries, or strawberries can be heated in the sugar syrup, then strained to make fruit-flavored sherbet. Serves six. I did stir it twice during the freezing, but I feel like it wasn't enough. Ice crystals formed while it was freezing, so it was a little bit grittier in texture. Sherbet's supposed to be smooth and creamy, but that's okay. It didn't really affect the taste, just the texture a little bit. Man, I have to say, this stuff was dang amazing. (laughs) Um, I was worried about the half cup of lemon juice. That was kind of intimidating. But it just was so refreshing. There was the perfect balance of cream to tart flavor. And I thought the pineapple was my favorite. It was just so good. Um, My kids liked the orange flavor. And I think this is important to note. It did not taste like orange creamsicle. I hate orange creamsicle. (laughs) And I was worried that it would taste like that. But it didn't. And I think it's because there was no vanilla in it. I think if there was vanilla, it might have tasted like that. But it was just a very nice orange tart, creamy. Oh, it was it was good, too. So I would say that both of these recipes were a huge success. Um, I think they definitely could use some work on my part. Just I'm not too familiar with making ice cream at home from scratch. Even though we have an ice cream maker, we just don't make it very often. So um, I'm sure that by perfecting technique of like stirring while it's freezing and things like that um, could make a smoother end product. So I recommend these. I will be putting these recipes on my blog and I do hope you give them a try. Today's story highlight is from Stephanie Pitchers, who is another fellow World War II reenactor friend of mine. She submitted a story about folks in her hometown area of Vermilion County, Illinois. This is what she says. We all hear about how difficult rationing was, but the reality is it wasn't so for a number of communities. I grew up in Vermilion County, Illinois. Much of my family is from the smaller communities that surround Danville. The community up until the 90s had a very nice mix of industrial, urban, and ag. So growing up, I would often ask relatives and other older people in the community about World War II. On the subject of rationing, you can find almost nobody that ever felt any significant hardships or pinches because people had gardens and got meat and other things from all the local farms in the area. The one area of hurt you will hear time and time again about is rations for tires, gas, and the biggest one, shoes. My great-grandmother was a school teacher during the time and taught multiple grades in the one-room school building while a new grade school was being built. She often told stories about how girls would come to school wearing clothes and boots that were hand-me-downs from a big brother and boys would often wear Mary Janes and sweaters that were hand-me-downs from an older sister. My great-grandmother was a widowed mother of four at the time and her sister was a World War I army nurse that served in Verdun but had taken a civilian position at the local VA. Being a nurse, she was classed as an essential war worker and got extra ration allowances that she would give my great-grandmother to use for shoes and tires. As for the recipes, there's a few that are pretty local staples, but I suspect they are handed down things from earlier times and not really written any place. 
For example, breakfast or even a dessert could be a bowl of white rice with warm milk and sugar over it. So delicious. And they also do the same with cream of wheat. Another thing you see is a slice of white bread with butter and then shavings of a chocolate bar over the top of it. Three bean salad made of kidney beans, green beans, and yellow wax beans are popular in both vinegar base or mayonnaise base. Pot roast with carrots, onions, and potatoes are a stable family meal. Raw onion or raw green onions are also often offered up, and the elders always say it was for health and reference the influenza outbreak of the teens, but you see people eat them like apple slices or with butter or salt. It was never anything I could get used to. Other dishes that are from the area and popular among those that lived through the war are fried cornmeal mush with maple syrup, ham and beans. They even have big social for those. And fried donuts. Fried donuts are actually either store-bought or frozen plain glazed donuts that get sliced in half like a bagel and then fried in butter till crispy. Wow, that sounds really good. (laughs) Thank you so much, Stephanie, for submitting this story. It's really awesome to see uh, like a picture of one local area and what their wartime experience was. And this is a really great illustration of what I've been encountering that the people I've talked to who remember rationing, they don't remember really doing without um, any food things in particular. And I think it's because the people I've talked to lived in rural areas where there were a lot of local farms. All right. Well, that's it for today's episode. If you'd like to support this podcast, you can go to anchor.fm slash Sarah Creviston Lee and click on support. Be sure to check out my blog for the corresponding post so you can see pictures and my research and of course the recipes. Thanks so much for listening and I'll talk to you next time. Bye. Bye.